0: Another episode of the Agency Podcast. This is Eugene, your agent in Toronto.
1: And Candy, your agent in Connecticut and New York
0: City. Connecticut and <laughs> New York City. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're getting around America. You are I getting really around am. America. I really am. I, you know, I want to
1: extend it to the UK and
0: Florence and Sweden,
1: but we're starting Florence with this. Sweden,
0: my goodness. You've you've got your sights on world domination. I have. Well, I told you during
1: the quarantine, I thought if we ever get out of this again, there's some goals I want to do. It's like now or never,
0: you know, it's, it's good to be goal driven. My goals are a little smaller. My goals are like, learn to play Ned Landry's woodchoppers breakdown on the smaller
1: that's fantastic uh yeah so Stag and I have been in I'm gonna say almost a borderline culture shock as I've mentioned a couple of times um we have seen so much art it's insane and I've been sharing it on Facebook and Instagram just because it's just so much and I said I would so I've just been pounding it out there um we went to, we're in Connecticut right now, we were able to take a train downtown to New York City for the day, that's when we went to um, the Whitney and Chelsea, we spent a lot of hours in Chelsea, checking out tons of art, um, lots of female artists, I think we saw Jane and we saw John Chamberlain, Jenna Gribbon, oh, wow. Philip Gustin.
0: Philip Guston. Oh, I saw was killer. the pictures you yeah. posted of that huge Philip Gustin show. My goodness, mm-hmm. so many of his later works all in one room. How fantastic is that? Mind-blowing.
1: And we had no idea it was happening right now. Um, our host texted a friend who's in the gallery um, business and um, she said, uh, said, what shows should we see? And she mentioned that one. So off, And it was right next to the shows where I had really wanted to see these three women in Chelsea, uh, Michalina Thomas and um, uh, Lisa Yukavash. And I'm very sorry if I'm saying their names wrong, but I think I think I got it. I, I'm a big fan of Yukavash, and I was so excited to see this new show, which I did not post pictures of yet. I will do that after today's recording. I Like I said, there, I have so many. I'm trying to purge the photos on my phone right now. So that's the other reason why I'm just trying to get them out on uh Facebook. So off we go. And there's Philip Gustin. Now I wonder if this was the Philip Guston situation that they had talked about canceling in during the um, protest to George Floyd,
0: because right. I there think was, they were afraid. There was a large scale exhibition mm-hmm. and the curators of whichever exhibition that was, I don't know if it's the same. I don't, one, I don't either. Uh, decided to cancel it because they were concerned about Mr. Guston's content Mm -hmm. in, in light of the protests. Yes. yes. Um, and for people who don't know Philip Guston's work, um, let me just give our listeners a, a brief lowdown. Thank you. Um, he had in a way three careers. He started off, uh, he was as a young man, he was, uh, I would say a social realist. He was doing WPA murals, um, and, um, uh, he was doing content which was very very much um uh, I, I i can only call it social realist content you know and then abstract expressionism broke out uh and he was on the forefront of it uh, philip gustin among other things was expelled from high school along with his buddy jackson pollock it's a little t- tidbit
2: oh.
0: and um he uh he jumped right into this whole abstract expressionist business and his work became monstrously popular. And he was actually known as an abstract impressionist, uh, which is some kind of comment about um, his works being, I guess, prettier than his buddy Jackson's. Um, and then later in his career, round about was 1970. Uh, he, I'm not sure the exact date. He had an exhibition at the Marlborough gallery in New York. Um, and it kind of stunned the art world because his work had underwent a huge transformation. And he started making these large scale cartoon like paintings, uh, that were very dark, uh, there he did self portraits wearing, uh, Ku Klux Klan hoods, uh, self-flagellating and staring at bottles and staring at bare light bulbs, um, and he did pictures of himself along with other people dressed as Ku Klux Klan people in convertibles driving around town looking for trouble. Yes, I mean
2: this
0: was this was really really dark painting but also painting that was done in a very childlike cartoonish manner and a lot of the abstract expressionists thought he was a traitor Uh, with, with the exception of I believe Willem de Kooning who said I don't see what the problem is this is all about freedom right so uh there was some concerns that uh that the Gustin work may be inappropriate at the time, uh, which I think was kind of wimpy. Um, yeah, the Gustin work is very, very dark, but I don't think it's racist. And that is based
1: on why we don't why, think it's racist. Why why don't
0: we oh, think it's be, racist? Um be, because I mean the 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 work is facing America's history, is facing racism and is talking about the evil within us all yes right he's he's depicting himself Uh, you know he in an interview at the time he he talked about um i wanted to i wanted to feel what it was like to be evil i mean these Mm -hmm. are dark paintings dark paintings of the human soul i think Mm -hmm. Uh, i i don't think that they were literal paintings about um about, they certainly weren't celebrating the Ku Klux Klan, that's right. for sure. So, they're art, they're fake, they're not yes. real, it's art. Uh, it's, and yes,
1: yeah. yeah, so it's in the context of the art, there's a story there, it's not going to turn us all into Ku Klux Klan, exactly. All right, good to know. I'm glad to know we can still feel that about life and art these days. Yes, we can, yeah. Um, so what else did you see? Oh my god, um. Well, Lisa Yukavaj was killer. It was amazing. We saw John Chamberlain's retrospective show was really good too. Um, just a huge collection of his stuff. Uh we went to the Whitney and um I I went can to you the Whitney. back up for a
0: minute? Yeah. The, the the John Chamberlain work, was it the Smash Car Works? Yes, was it is. A, Yes. it was smash cars yeah and they, uh, were, they I, were i got to see a, a huge collection of those at the at the uh dia beacon a couple of years ago uh when i was uh down in uh upstate new york and mm. wow what what a fantastic collection uh, of works really 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 powerful
1: oh very powerful and it's oddly gorgeous um i just want to explain to our listeners that um i'm in the kitchen with our host and he is um Making breakfast. So, just we're just going to let that happen. And uh, that's life on the agency podcast. <laughs> it's a low budget podcast, and things like that just happen, and we embrace them. Um, so, um, yes. So, it is all, the other thing is having seen many John Chamberlains myself, like the Philip Guston show, it's pretty amazing when you see more than four <laughs> and you're in two massive, two or three massive rooms of his work. The other show we saw, we went to the Whitney. And I'd been to the Whitney uh, three years ago. And it's a new building and it's gorgeous. Now it's more than three years old, obviously. Still gorgeous. And we walked to the Whitney through Manhattan on a thing called the High Line. And many cities have taken over railroad tracks, um, elevated train tracks, and turned them into parkways. And at first, I was like, why is my curse to always travel with people who want to walk so much? (laughs) because I did not want to do it. It was a really hot day, but it turned out to be a great different way to cross Manhattan. Um, we went to the one in Chicago and I was like,, eh, you know it's walking in the heat in the sun, uh, looking in people's bedrooms, which I don't mind doing. I do like to look at the apartments. Um, so anyway, we went on this thing called the High Line. We also saw another elevated park by Diane Diane von Furstenberg. And it's outrageous. It looks like it's on high heels. It's like a whole bunch of stilettos, white stilettos, and then there's green plants on top of it. It was so cool looking. And um, at the time, we didn't know that it was Diane von Furstenberg's work, and she's a clothing designer. So that was really awesome. Then we uh, get to the Whitney. So we went from something like 34th all the way down to the Whitney just, you know, pretty good walk and it was super fast. We did not see the streets of New York during it, but we saw lots of people who were escaping and sitting and having picnics and lunch. The Whitney new building is incredible. It's, it's worth a trip to New York City just to see that. It's, it's pretty big. And there was a huge show of Jasper Johns. And oh, it yeah. went all the way from, you know, his early stuff to the to the end. I had no idea he was gay. I didn't realize he was in a relationship with uh, Rauschenberg. And then they had a falling out and it broke his heart and um, probably affected some of his work. I have no idea. I don't read a lot about the lives of artists or or painters. Um, Not too much. I read Vanity Fair here and there, and I got into Turner. I may have, I've explored Turner, Gustin, and De Chirico. A few different artists, for sure. Uh, Francis Bacon, but I don't have a habit of reading about every artist.
0: I have to admit, I know very little about Jasper Johns, me aside too. from the books you see in contemporary art history texts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I look at the, I look at those paintings
2: and I go, oh,
0: oh yeah, <laughs> what else is there in the book? And I right. flip through it and move on. Yeah. I just have had no, the, the works have not pulled me in. And yeah. I haven't made any particular effort to, to dive, deep dive in there. Well, I wouldn't have gone. I, I, if it was me, I wouldn't have put it on the list. But Steig had not seen the
1: Whitney, and our our friend wanted to see this huge show. So you know, we went. We were taking. They went with us to Chelsea. So we went with them to see um, this show. i I'm, I'm, I have a similar feeling, a much more similar feeling. Not a passionate fan. Um, they're okay. I, I don't dislike them, and I actually preferred a lot of his a couple of his last paintings, which were highly intellectual. They had a string hanging on them. They weren't, I don't know how engaging they were, but I, I thought they were somewhat interesting. And I also am happy to know he's still alive and he's still working. So that was pretty cool. I like that part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then we went to the top floor and there's a beautiful view of the city and a lovely bar up there. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. else do we see oh okay the killer surprise show was um we went we're staying in connecticut as i said we we did stay down in brooklyn a couple of days um oh when we were in brooklyn we met a friend uh from portland and they were there and they got us tickets to kusama and she kind of organized it and kusama was being um exhibited in the botanical gardens in the bronx uh it, I thought we were going to go for an hour or two. It was so fantastic. The gardens were so beautiful. We stayed completely all day. Outside, indoors, outdoors. We just had an amazing time. It was an incredible, spectacular art show.
0: And what did you see? What? Well,
1: she what, had what? outdoor sculptures, and she had many sculptures that were quite highly produced, like with polished metals. But she also had a room where I did not know it. I took a couple of pictures. You weren't allowed to take pictures. I didn't know them. They told me not to. Um, of some of her older work and more personal work. And it was really amazing to see some of her drawings from when she was a teenager. And her mother never wanted, her parents did oh, not want her to
0: She to be destroy a, them.
1: She failed to destroy them. She kept them, she keeps them herself. They're her private collection. She had a lot of stuff in there that was her private collection that she, was not for sale. I think your um, artists
0: have a responsibility to, to get rid of, destroy the work you don't want people to see after you're gone.
1: Yeah, she's still here. And I guess she decided she didn't want people to see it. And um, it it was spectacular.
0: Some of the ink drawings, you could really
1: see the history forever. She has seen pretty much almost her whole life. She um, has a, a visual, what some people call visual hallucinations. I don't call them that. Um, she sees dots. Um, I, I see dots too, when I'm very, very tired. And when I've taken mushrooms or ecstasy I have a veil of dots over me which I've always felt was actually just me seeing the energy of the world
0: I've always thought you were a little dotty
1: yeah I am a little dotty (laughs) (laughs) so I feel like I guess she doesn't get out of that I'm able to summon it if I if I want to or although unless you're on LSD you can't unsummon it Um, I've had that happen on on LSD too where it's very powerful visual hallucination Although I am not convinced this hallucination, I think I'm seeing another layer of reality. And we can leave that for the philosophers. Um, not the doctors. I'm very lucky that I've never had anyone prescribe drugs for me, you know, because I'm sure that in the past they would have um, given drugs to someone who said they saw
0: weird things. Um, and for me, it's just mostly when I'm very tired. You know, speaking of, of hallucinations yeah. and LSD, last week uh, on the program, uh, you introduced a, a podcast that you listened to called mm-hmm. Operation Midnight Climax, and and it was about um, it was about the MK Ultra CIA experiments, which yes. lasted for about twenty years in the United States and, and Canada, applied. and and in Canada. When we were when we were talking about it, we said, "Oh, we wish we had Sarah Elliott here yeah. because she would have some great insights into this." So of course we had to contact Sarah and ask her (laughs) if if she would, if she would come on to the show again uh, for her third time, Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah uh, is responsible for the swallowing the camel blog, which you can uh, catch at Mm -hmm. swallowingthecamel.me. She's fantastic. She's got a lot to say about, uh, about this subject. And uh, we've invited Sarah to, to come back onto the podcast and we're going to go and listen to that interview right now.
3: I am very glad to be back. And it's a topic that's pretty dear to me okay. for some reason. Like I uh, first came across in the late 90s, thanks to the CBC. They did a fantastic little film about you and Cameron and his uh, sleep room projects, which were sort of, well, they were funded by the CIA. They weren't mm-hmm. officially a part of MKUltra. Right. But he was getting CIA funding, whether he right. or not. Right. So I watched that and then I was so curious. I wanted to know more and more and more about MK Ultra. Unfortunately, at that time, there weren't a lot of mainstream books and there wasn't a lot of information online yet either. I mean, this is That's the late sorry. 90s. It's kind of like the earliest days of the internet. Right. So I came across a few valid sources, but I came across so much bizarre, bizarre stuff. And mm. it was actually how I bumped into Alex Jones for the first time. Likewise. Oh,
0: Wow, because his uh do tell.
3: his bohemian grove stuff kept sort of interjecting itself into my searches and like interrupting me and, like who is this guy <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this young kind of younger guy out of austin at that time he looked young mm-hmm. uh within a couple yep. of years he looked like he was about my dad's age even though we're four <laughs> years apart but at the time he was just kind of a young gravelly voiced guy and i thought mm. well i don't really know what he's getting at with this bohemian grove yeah. stuff so i'm just gonna let that settle and just leave it to the side. And I never did return to it, but I did find oh, just just an enormous amount of, like, I don't know what you'd even want to call it. Are they hoaxes? Are they scams? But, you mm-hmm. know, supposed offshoots of MK Ultra. Okay. People were claiming in the nineties were claiming to be survivors of these programs. Maybe to get some money. money? You kind of wonder because they were going around to different they were on the the Patriot lecture circuit basically. So they were being paid cash, they were self-publishing books, Mm -hmm. they were just putting all reams of material out there. And it was super confusing for someone who really just wanted to know about the core projects of MK Ultra. Right. Because there was so much
1: why don't we kind of help our listeners know what that is? In case someone just happened <laughs> to listen to this podcast, this episode like, for the first time. Well, it's
0: okay.
1: that, uh, Go ahead, or I can. Oh,
3: yeah. So MK MKUltra uh, was basically an umbrella term for a group of projects that were funded by the CIA beginning, um, I would say, about 1953 and extending for a 20-year period all the way into the 70s. Mm-hmm. So they started at the very, you know, kind of the early stages of the Cold War, and they didn't wrap up until basically the Watergate era.
1: Right. And they were basically experimenting on on human subjects uh, for mind control or torture techniques.
3: Yes, they were. The goal, the stated goal was to find ways to manipulate human behavior to the greatest extent possible. So they tried a little bit of everything. They tried (laughs) drugs. hypnosis classical conditioning mm-hmm. all kinds of a lot of drugs though mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of
1: drugs. electroshock
3: yes uh, coma uh,
1: drugs to put people to sleep and wake them up again yes So now, indeed. they
0: were just drugging volunteers right no, they were, no no they were drugging people who had no idea
1: correct now there were some volunteers which i mentioned last week robert hunter from the grateful dead timothy leary did not get cia he got cia LSD because Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head of this, he was a chemist for the CIA, he literally brought, he bought the world supply of LSD and brought it to the United States for these experiments. And, um, and then they put it into universities. So people like Allen Ginsberg and Ken Kesey, Timothy Leary, Timothy Leary went from a to Mexico for a grant to try magic mushrooms from money from the CIA, he did not know it was from the CIA, because they had a cover program for this so this right. is kind of all related to mk ultra and just to give a setting so we're, they, we're the how big, they would
3: set it up is for people who were not volunteers uh, they would have umbra, you know cover organizations that had pretty official sounding names institutes and things like that That just simply didn't exist. These were like little shell institutes, if you want to call them that, Mm -hmm. that would channel money to people. So people like you and Cameron or Timothy Leary or whoever was conducting the experiments might not know they had anything to do with CIA research into mind control and behavior Ah. control.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So... Yeah, Eugene, it was called um, something
1: like the Institute for Human Ecology. And what's really interesting is that there's three or four, there's several people who are really famous researchers. Margaret Mead was on the board of directors. Her husband, who pioneered AI and um, cognitive theory, uh, Bateson got money from the CIA. They did not know it was CIA money. Um, There were two people who um, were therapists and they got thousands and thousands of dollars. And they eventually um, they created a, a whole. Um, they created the New Age movement. Actually, There were of course on miracles, which is another side topic. But I guess they they had so much crisis at Harvard, where they were getting these funds, and they thought this is such bullshit. They wanted to find a new way to help people. Um, but that's another story for another day.
0: So the the victims, the, the yes, people the who were the victims were outside of that. Um, did nobody scream and say, you know? Something happened yesterday, and it just wasn't right. No, you know, or that was like really strong weed.
1: No, <laughs> unfortunately, with LSD, what we know about it is if you take it willingly, it it, it doesn't it very rarely has terrible side effects. You might be high, or you know, dress crazy, or something, uh, or get naked. But in general, it's not that traumatic. It might be intense, but it's not traumatic. If you take LSD and you didn't know what was happening, you're basically having a psychotic break with reality.
3: Mm-hmm. A and lot of you these... don't know that
1: you're doing it sorry sir
3: yeah oh no no please uh so most of these people were dosed without as candy was saying without even being told uh, these these are people in the early 50s who didn't even know lsd existed right. <laughs> so they were like at a party no, yeah you would have no frame for that experience you would have you've never taken a drug a lot of these people That's were awesome you know they had ended up in care because they were housewives or you know who Mm -hmm. were dealing with depression you know these were just ordinary people a lot of like working class people middle class people they had no experience with street level drugs they had no experience with with really any form of of uh mind-altering substances other than maybe some booze once in a while Mm -hmm. so I'm not sure they even would have known how to describe what they were experiencing. It was so completely wild. That's and then also, point. if they were in a, an institution or you know being getting psychological treatment, supposedly, um, they would go along with their doctors and say, well, I trust my physician or I trust this person I've consulted. This is what they told me to take or to do, and I'm going to try it out and hopefully I'll get better
1: right because some people were patients in a hospital some were soldiers and didn't know they were being basically poisoned
3: that's right and there were prisoners who yes. what what right do prisoners have to complain about anything you know right. it's it's impossible for them to address poor treatment and poor conditions so you know if you volunteer for a study and you sign a little waiver and then later on you realize wow i did not enjoy that <laughs> there's not very much uh anyone's going to do for you
0: yeah or, wow, I really enjoyed that. Can we do it again? I wonder <laughs> if anyone you know, had the opposite well, reaction. It did. Timothy Leary, <laughs> Allen
1: Ginsberg. Um, in Canada, um, in Regina, they were treating alcoholism with LSD. And people, yeah. the students started signing up for it. And I, I know someone personally who was in it, and he really liked the experience. He, he, did, he did LSD really till his death in his 70s.
3: Now, they reported some success with that study. Is Absolutely. there any validity to that? Was that successful? Oh, it was
1: highly successful. Yeah. Wow. I guess it just, um, and, and it's it's continued study. That kind of study has been kind of quietly done. And uh, Michael Pollan wrote about it recently. And it still seems to be highly effective for depression and alcoholism. Instead of taking SSRIs every day, taking LSD, there's a lot to say that you won't feel depression for six
0: months. But it's right. a lot different if you know you're getting therapy That's and it. you have someone who's there to help guide That's you through it. the experience safely. Yeah. It's a little bit different than, you know, somebody somebody doses your iced tea. That's right.
3: Yeah, it is That's very. Right. A lot of people from that era did use LSD in a psychological treatment alongside conventional therapy. Mm. A Carrie Grant was a huge believer. That's in, right in the power of lsd he had very good experiences with it Mm -hmm. and heish more recently had reported positive experiences And
1: yeah oh interesting (laughs) yeah i don't know how
3: successful her treatments actually were but she felt they were she reported positive results and a lot of people did during that time so it wasn't all negative like not all of this experimentation was like you know out on a limb like with Leary and his house full of children and like crazy things happening all the time you know it was there mm-hmm. were some very um studies that were kind of ahead of their time and did achieve some really positive results mm-hmm. but unfortunately the ones that that the CIA was funding were not the ones they were actually accomplishing anything and um, they tried but... to
0: ditch the documents right
3: They did, yeah. Under Richard Helms. This this program occurred under like three or four different CIA directors. It was brought in by Alan Dulles, but Richard Helms was the guy who had to clean up the mess. And he decided, hey, you know, the the president's doing it. Let's let's John Mitchell's doing it. Let's do it too. Let's just shred everything. (laughs) So they tried, but they had kind of forgotten that there was something like. A couple thousand documents that had been stored away, uh, duplicates, I think, that had been mm. stored away in a warehouse. And those did come to light later. <laughs>
0: There's always somebody who makes photocopies.
3: <laughs> exactly. There's always that guy. Yeah, and but- uh, in addition to that, I think that Seymour Hersh uh, was probably already, at the time they started shredding, I think he was already on to this program. Mm. And I think he was probably already working on the articles that would be published in The New York Times starting in 74. Mm. So people were on top of this, like it was starting to leak already. When you fund that many different programs with so many different people in more than one country, yeah, you're going to leave some traces, right?
1: Yeah, not everyone's going to keep it secret, I guess. Um, What did you think of, um, under Sidney Gottlieb, he kind of hired this guy who used to be a cop, and he was a narcotics cop, and he... Basically, had busted the jazz scene and Billie Holiday, so that she couldn't even have a license to practice in cabaret. And his name was George White. And um, one of the things in the podcast I thought really was interesting was they did focus on this guy a lot. There's a podcast called Operation Midnight Climax,
3: right? Which I, I did listen to it. Oh, but it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty good.
1: That's good stuff. Um, what do you think about this character, George White? What do you have you have you are you familiar with him over the years?
3: Yes, and I I do want to back it up just a okay, little bit, please. just a tiny bit to Godlib himself. Mm, yeah, because I think if you're gonna name great characters in CIA history, and by characters I mean like just absolutely outlandish, weird <laughs> characters out of a Cohen brothers film,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Sidney Godlib just fits the bill. He's such <laughs> a bizarre, bizarre man. Like at yeah, the what time, what do you know about him? At the time that he entered the CIA in the early 50s, he he got through the ranks so fast. He accelerated so quickly and did so much with so little time. that it's kind of dizzying. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you can do that anymore. But because it was so brand new, you know, it had just transitioned mm-hmm. from being the OSS to being the CIA with a little break in between. I think that he was able to get through the ranks pretty quickly. But if you look at his background, uh, he was a chemist and he did have a fantastic education. but he had kind of an agricultural background, like oh, he had studied soils it. and things like that.
1: I'm not surprised. <laughs>
3: kind, of, kind of strange though, right? But he was also very rustic. Okay. And by rustic, I mean that he presented himself very well, always had the suits and ties going on. But <laughs> he lived on a farm that had no running water. Um, I think he had electricity, but extremely rustic conditions. He raised goats. He sold Christmas trees uh he was fascinated by folk dances so every time he visited a new country or someone came to him from a new country he would insist on learning their their native dances and he would try to replicate them now he had a club foot from birth which is why he wasn't involved in like any other sort of service like military service but he <laughs> um insisted on on folk dancing,
0: folk dancing and with this, a club foot. interesting
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he sounds like actually kind of a, a cool guy, but he sounds
1: kind of cool. Yeah, quirky, my
3: gets, kind of guy, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he sort of was, but then Except he gets for into the CIA
0: these... stuff.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Details, right? Did, did he have he a did, family? Did he? He did. Yeah, I think he had about four kids. Wow. And they were. It was a very tight family. Like they did all these things together. They farmed and raised the goats. And yeah, he was very close with his family. Hmm. A lot of these guys were, but then we get on to george hunter white
2: mm-hmm.
3: now he was not cia but he was one of the very few participants in mk Ultra who was in the know mm-hmm. like he was made aware that he was working for the cia and i mm-hmm. think he actually even had to go through a clearance process and it seems to me that i, I don't recall from the podcast but i think they said that he had applied yeah, to work for the cia at a previous time and right. they right, right. weren't too sure about him yeah. Or something like that but okay at any rate he was hand-picked by Gottlieb to run this um run I don't know what you would even call them they sometimes they're referred to as safe houses but these yes. were basically um crash pads uh the first one was set up in Greenwich Village and then there was another one later or a series of them later on in Los Angeles there was it San Francisco yeah. I think it might have been San Francisco. Anyway, California. (laughs) Yeah. So um, these were places where they were basically just apartments that someone had rented out. I don't know if white actually did did the renting or whatever, but they would be outfitted uh, to be really comfortable, just kind of chill environments, places where you could go and hang out, and uh, white, this very strange character he was a literal narc Mm -hmm. like he was Mm a narcotics officer and he Mm -hmm. was still active as a narcotics officer during these experiments so i think he he didn't
0: feel like he had a double standard going on
3: (laughs) apparently not no if the cia gives you the drugs then it's okay right oh okay (laughs) i guess that's the reasoning here like the government supplies the drugs it's all good So they basically gave him whatever he wanted, you know, as as much LSD as as he wanted, whatever he asked for. He had an almost unlimited budget. And then he would set up these posh little pads. Apparently, the the podcast mentions that they were sort of modeled on like the Playboy Mansion. (laughs) They may even have consulted half about how, you know, how do we make men feel comfortable and relaxed? and the idea was to get them in there lace their drinks which was a CIA specialty and then see if you could get them talking now for the Greenwich Village experiments I always wondered why this was even necessary (laughs) because you're dealing with people you know you take them out for an espresso they're gonna talk right (laughs) right you don't really have to pry information out of people and so much of of MK Ultra was focused on, you know, how do we break people down? How do we get them to confess their secrets? Mm-hmm. But nobody really thought too much about, well, how about you get on intimate terms with them? How about you befriend them? How about you, you know, offer A Traditional
0: them- spy stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which works pretty well. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that's still used today. Time-watered cool spy to stuff. Exactly. I guess
1: they were really hoping for this magic truth serum. They you were. know, um, that would just make people, so they could use it on actual soldiers and spies in the field, I'm guessing.
3: That's um, exactly right. Yeah. They thought that the Soviets and the communists and the maybe even the Japanese and Germans had something that they didn't have. Because they looked at the Moscow show trials of the late 30s and saw these people confessing to trying to murder Stalin and all these outrageous plots. And then later on there was a Hungarian bishop or cardinal, I'm sorry, uh, named Cardinal Minzenti, who um, same deal, he was kind of against the communist government in Hungary. So one day he just sort of disappeared from his palace (laughs) and he shows up a couple of weeks later, uh, sort of stumbling around, talking in a very slurred speech and he starts confessing to outrageous things. He basically says that he was trying to reinstall the Austro-Hungarian Empire replaced the communist regime. Outrageous, outrageous things, right? So the Americans and the British are watching this going, what the hell? Like, how we, what are they you doing? Want too. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, we want to do this. How do you do this? Yeah. And to this day, no one knows exactly what happened to Cardinal Menzenti or what exactly Stalin did to mm. make the show Trial so spectacular. Mm. But, uh, the Americans were convinced that they could replicate it. And I think they were on that quest to find that perfect substance. The first one that they tried out um, was basically just THC extract. It was just strong pot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that did much of anything. It probably just made people kind of gabby and then sleepy. (laughs) It just didn't do anything. (laughs) But then, of course... Yeah, yeah right. all of a sudden people just hey you want to go out to eat
2: yeah
3: uh, but when they stumbled upon lsd then they were really hooked they were like mm-hmm. this has to be the stuff
2: mm-hmm.
3: like if we can somehow get this in just exactly the right dose at exactly the right time in exactly the right circumstances and combine it with other methods we can do anything
1: well the irony is that Actually, when you take LSD, you often see through a lot of social structures and you're not interested in them anymore. And it's almost the opposite of what they were hoping to do. You're not able to control people who have taken LSD as easily yeah. as people who have not.
3: Yeah, it we know that backfired. now. It backfired, yeah. You have to think, looking at, not so much with George Hunter White, because that guy was a bit of a loose cannon. This was yeah. a former surfer uh, who had an open marriage, Mm -hmm. kind of a swinging lifestyle, a bit of a drinking problem. Yes. Yeah. So he, uh, he was not a square, like Mm. most, like most narcs, he kind of lived on the wilder side. Like he's trying to police everybody else, but he's living that lifestyle, (laughs) right? Yeah. So, um, but the other guys like Gottlieb, uh, Alan Dulles, all those guys are kind of square. Like they really—the funniest part in the podcast—I don't know if you recall this, Candy—but there was one, one uh, psychologist who was brought in to one of the crash pads in California to observe prostitutes working with drugged men. Mm-hmm. And when I say working with, I'm like, yeah. yes. "What was this for? Really? Is this just for amusement?" Right. Like, oh, well,
0: was that maybe that's part of the deal to uh, to relax the the men yeah. in the crash pads to get them in the exactly. right state of mind.
3: Yeah, they wanted to see if if the prostitutes could kind of talk them into divulging more information than they would normally. Again, you could just ask, but, you know, they went to all these great lengths to Mm -hmm. see what what it would take. But anyway, yeah. I suspect the um,
0: prostitutes would probably do better, (laughs) even without the drugs, extracting (laughs) the information.
3: Right. Yeah, exactly. But the funniest part of all this was one of the psychologists coming in and being fascinated with, uh, the different sexual positions that were on display, <laughs> and so he had, he got down on the floor with one of the prostitutes and was saying, "Tell me more about about what you do with these johns." You know, they didn't even know the terminology; they were just right. blown away by all of this jargon, right? right. All this street jargon. And he's like, "Could you just show me with pipe cleaners what it is that you do?"
2: <laughs>
3: and then he actually photographed the pipe cleaners and made a little dossier of these different oh sexual God. positions with pipe wow. cleaners. And I'm like, is this for personal use? Is this government research? Like what right. do you do?
0: <laughs> I always wondered f- what pipe cleaners really were for.
3: <laughs>
0: I mean there aren't that many pipe smokers around. Not anymore. Yet there's no. there's plenty of pipe cleaners. They're for crafts. Now we know.
3: They're for crafts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're mostly for kids but yeah. uh, also for recording sexual positions.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Now you
1: know. I'm surprised there hasn't been some kind of a movie made from this.
3: Oh, there should be. There really should be, really should 50, be because
1: both of those men would be fascinating characters.
3: They absolutely would. Yeah. Gottlob has been played a couple of times. Oh, has um, he? He did appear in the recreation portions of uh, Wormwood, which is a Netflix documentary. Oh, he did? Oh, but the not apparently- the real
1: guy. But yes, they did put him in there. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. true. That's so true. he just
3: appears very briefly in a scene yeah. where he's at a, a CIA party with some guys from Fort Dietrich. Right. Yeah. Um, bio warfare guys, basically. Right. And he is spiking the drinks. Which is a whole other story. Yeah,
1: unbelievable. <laughs> what did you think of Wormwood?
3: Um I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Errol Morris because of the whole Jeffrey McDonald thing, but I found his, (laughs) I find his actual physical style of filmmaking very disorienting. Where he's doing, you know, he's cutting in on people and then zooming back, and then it's very, yeah. I felt like I was on acid at points. I'm like, this is what is happening? Why is the camera doing this? Okay, Um, but that's just his style. I think content-wise, it was a fairly good examination of the Frank Olson case. Mm Uh, Frank Olson, of course, was a guy from, he was a biowarfare expert from Fort Detrick, who was, um, again, kind of a square. I mean, he was just kind of a white collar chemist type. I'm not sure if he was a chemist or biologist. Yeah,
1: I think he was a chemist.
3: He was working with biological agents. Okay. Oh, He might have been both. He was very well educated. Right. But he, um, he was, the thing with MKUltra was that these guys liked some of the some of the CIA agents who participated in the program were dosing each other and themselves, mm-hmm. in addition to mm-hmm. participants in the studies mm-hmm. and things like that. So, I think it's, you know, is I that sus- because
0: of some kind of curiosity, or I, I they thought so, they'd yeah. like it and and wanted to continue to
3: partake. Yeah, yeah, I think they just wanted to know what is this like, really, and that's oh. probably good. Yeah, you know, it really- gave them more insight.
1: Apparently, Sidney Gottlieb took it hundreds of times. Yeah. Hundreds.
3: Yeah. So, I I mean, it's
1: just funny that he was like this original hippie living on a farm or a hipster (laughs) or something, doing acid, had pet goats. I mean.
3: You know, if he hadn't gotten into government service, he might have turned out okay. He might have, yeah. He might have been just fine. I don't know. (laughs) He went astray somewhere. He sure did. Picked the wrong job. But... um. Yeah, so these guys would dose themselves and each other, and Godlob got it into his head one Christmas, I think it was around Christmas, November, 1953. Mm. He decided, you know, we're going to have a little get-together in the mountains, at a retreat, and we're going to have these Fort Detrick guys there to discuss what we're doing on the biological spectrum for warfare. And let's just see how they respond. Mm. Let's just see how these lab guys are going to do with Oh my baskets. god. So we had some cointreau and was pouring it out and you know dosed everybody when they weren't looking. And I don't know exactly what happened to Olsen, but from my understanding, he did not have a great trip. And he didn't know anything about LSD. He didn't know that he was on it. And he started to have a massive anxiety reaction. He became very paranoid. He started to ramble oh. a lot. When all of
0: a sudden the world in front of you starts changing radically and you don't know what's happening, it must be tremendously scary. Oh, it would
3: be. I can't even imagine. So he went home to.
0: scary kind of experience if you.
3: Right. You can have a bad trip even, you know, with all the safeguards in place. Right. Right. And this was a guy who basically, you know, they got together at the party, they dosed their drinks, and then they just let him go. Mm. So most of the people were okay, but Frank Olson went home to his family and his family reported. And you see this in Wormwood because his son talks about, you know, what he can recollect about his dad coming home and, and what happened in the Mm. few days after that. Um, his dad was just completely out of it. Like he was very paranoid. Mm. He wasn't acting like himself. He was kind of withdrawing from the family. Um, and the CIA knew all of this, like they were observing him too, because they could see that he wasn't quite, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, some little off with Frank.
2: Right. So uh,
3: they decided, well, we can't really take him to, you know, just any psychiatrist. We're going to take him to one of our guys. <laughs> and they ended up taking him to some allergist in Manhattan that they had been funding. So, an allergist had also been giving substances to people as he was getting CIA funding as well. He was on the payroll. So, they took Frank Olson to him and said, You know, can you straighten this guy out? You know, we need to get him in shape to go back to work. Yeah. Like, he can't function. And yeah. uh, it wasn't working out very well. Yeah. So, they decided to just keep him under very, very close observation. And a guy named Dr. Richard Lashbrook, who was part of MK Ultra, was assigned to monitor Olson very closely. And by monitor, I mean he was his constant companion. And rather than sending Olson home and risking his family asking too many questions or getting to the bottom of things, they kept him in a hotel room in Manhattan. They kept him at the Statler Hotel. I can't remember what floor it was, but it was, it was high. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's quite a height. And one evening in November, 53, he dropped out of the the window Mm -hmm. and hit the pavement. He survived very briefly and then passed away from his injuries.
1: Yeah. And to this
3: day, we don't really know what happened.
1: No, it's, um, it's unbelievable how cruel these experiments were to people. And then you think about um, how it was kept secret and we find out about it. And
0: and it's as well, you know, we know now they did this for something like 20 years. What are they doing today?
1: Well, they did crack cocaine. They did cocaine. They allowed cocaine to come into the country. And, um, you know, people are really still working on that trail of evidence. But I think it's been proven that they were involved in the cocaine trade.
3: No, at the very, very minimum they were completely cognizant of it and allowed it continue and did not hinder it and worked with people who were active in it knowingly. Mm-hmm. And that's bad enough.
2: That is bad and enough. It's Even the
0: same characters bad. who, who launched the war on drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty terrifying.
1: It is very terrifying. And why we should be so suspicious and continue to be suspicious. You know, I saw a conspiracy theorist to um, <laughs> speak. Oh God. I, I like you. I was reading a lot of this stuff in the nineties, John Stockton. And he was saying that the CIA even creates people to be conspiracy theorists, to layer up and make it exhausting to find out anything because some of the theories are just so ludicrous or they're um, red herrings.
3: That's absolutely true. And I think it's absolutely true anyway. And another interesting thing about that is that with MKUltra, you know, they tried so hard to manipulate and control minds But really, you can do so much of that with conventional propaganda. And the Soviets, (laughs) the the U.S. knows that too, but the Soviets were like masters of it.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Like they fostered a lot of the conspiracy theories about JFK, even the more outrageous ones. They would just throw money at that secretly, you know, again, that sort of shell funding where you don't know where your funding is coming from. And, oh, now you're undermining the government. You're turning a far left uh, assassination into a far right conspiracy, Mm -hmm. or you're getting people questioning everything. Mm -hmm. They know exactly how to do things like Mm -hmm. that. So conspiracy theories in a sense are far more, far more potent than anything that was used in MKUltra.
1: Yes, very true.
3: They can really get under people's skin, so. And I think we see that most recently with things like Pizzagate, where you have people jumping in and just completely fabricating a storyline, putting it out there, getting people to buy into it.
0: And and it doesn't seem to matter how outrageous it is. If you keep selling it over and over, you know, you could, I mean, my dad used to say, son, you could sell shit on a stick. If (laughs) if you dress it up the right way. (laughs) And I mean, it's the same kind of thing. You just keep repeating that message. There's going to be people who will bite.
3: Mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. or the right message at the right time yes you know something that people want to hear need to hear they're yeah. already thinking it maybe. and even if and you
1: don't you do it on it. purpose people think things with accidentally like all the bad science um tv shows and articles and the the zeros and 90s yeah. um you know about how we get an idea and we get it so stuck that we can't like urban myths we can't shake them we, I, the other day, um, I was doing driving lessons and Andrew was saying something. He was getting close to home. And I, I guess we said something about an accident. And I said, oh, it's because your guard is down. He goes, no, the statistics are that most of us only drive by home. We're not driving on the highway all the time and taking trips or anything. <laughs> so, of course, the accidents are going to happen at home. And I was like, "Well, oh, I fell prey to that one, too. So those kind of weird memes that just stay with you and everybody believes them.
3: Yeah. You know yeah that's true <laughs> without Maybe. any
1: research or truth or anything yeah exactly well,
0: yeah. you don't but- want research to get in the way of a good story <laughs> that's and right. also today today's mantra is i do my own research uh-huh. <laughs> you know meaning so- i i look something up on google and right. take pick the response that best fits <laughs> what right. i thought going in right
3: exactly I, I would- love to see people do their own research I, w- I would love to think that they're setting up double blind studies and they're right. doing yeah, you think, know, these controlled surveys happening. and stuff um, but i, I think yeah. no no and most people
1: don't realize that when someone makes a theory um and it is still a theory or they study something that it has to go to a um a group of peers it has to be published. It has to go in front of peers and be reviewed. So when people are arguing, oh, well, this doctor said this and that doctor said that, and it you know it's only a few of them. Well, actually, spend some time. It has to be peer reviewed. That's how the medical scientific community is set up. But a lot of people don't even realize that.
3: Yeah. Um, so you
1: could be a, a medical doctor and and tell people something because you're a doctor, but you haven't put it into a magazine. You haven't put it out there. And exactly. It.
3: And that brings up a really interesting point about MK-Ultra and all of the sub-projects. Mm. Um, how little concrete information really came out of all these studies mm. and all these, really, because none of them were publishing. Right. They couldn't. Right. And I don't, I don't know if I've mentioned it or if we discussed mm. it yet, but you and Cameron's experiments at the Allen Memorial institute um, mm-hmm. that were being funded by the cia throughout the late 50s and mm-hmm. early 60s um were completely trash <laughs> yeah like he got no he not only didn't get the results he wanted which was to deprogram or he called it depatterning mm-hmm. people with electroconvulsive therapy he thought that if he did that often enough he could not mm-hmm. only straighten them out mentally and resolve their emotional problems but also kind of have a blank slate and and program yeah. them by putting them into medical comas, medically induced oh. comas, and then putting, um, I wouldn't even call them subliminal messages. He would just play the same recordings, generic recordings over and over again into their earphones oh, while they God. were knocked out cold. So of course he had no results. And these people, because they had gone through ridiculous amounts of ECT hmm. and had been in comas for up to three months, they were completely scrambled and they ended up going into provincial care and being taken care of by other institutions because the Allen had totally failed them so really there were no tangible results at that time from any of these studies and you know you had people doing you know parallel studies like the people working in in Saskatchewan with alcoholics Mm -hmm. and using LSD Mm -hmm. So you had studies going on that were actually bearing some fruit. But then you had these massively overfunded CIA studies that accomplished almost nothing as far as good mm-hmm. documented if, evidence. If if the study
0: means dosing people by lacing their drinks at a party Secretly. and watching what
3: happens, it's
0: it's hardly a really controlled environment.
3: It truly for a was a study,
0: you know, you don't you don't you're unable to study people physiologically, like what's going on, what's going on with your brain patterns, what's going on with your breathing, what's going on with your heart rate. Um, you can't exactly. ask questions. You know, you you just, you have a bunch of people way stoned at a party and, and other people who may also be trying out the drug, trying to assess it. You can't really expect a lot of results.
2: No,
3: no. No, there really were no tangible results. The only thing that I think may have come out of it is that, especially with Cameron's work, I think people may have looked at that in hindsight and said, okay, well, (laughs) he didn't get the results he was looking for, but there is that two stage process that we can kind of use for other purposes. You kind of uh, scramble people's brains a little bit by giving them complete sensory overload in one way or another. And then Kind of once you've got them just totally out of sorts, then you can, you know, start to apply pressures, which would be his um, psychic driving portion. Mm -hmm. Like he did the depatterning stage and then he would do the psychic driving with his subliminal messages. And in it to a degree, I mean, you see the enhanced interrogation techniques that are used today. And it's kind of like that. They psychologically break you down first and then try they might try to build something from that they might try to build rapport or they might start to apply pressures anything to get you to do what they want you to do so i think they may have borrowed a little bit from you and cameron's work yeah but
1: not a good thing because uh it's um against human rights it's a human rights violation basically they did they did learn how to torture people that is true
3: i think they did
1: yeah and they used it they used it in um you know in the last 20 years, they've used those results on people, that prisoners of war, and uh, unacceptable.
3: <laughs> it absolutely is. And, you know, a lot of these methods were taken from inhumane experiments that we have universally condemned. You know, there were mescaline experiments done at Dachau during World War II. Mm-hmm. That was kind of an inspiration for MKUltra. Yeah. There were also experiments that the Japanese were conducting in their infamous unit
2: 731,
3: which were absolutely atrocious and appalling. Probably even worse than the Dachau aviation experiments or any of the, the inhumane experiments that were happening in Germany at that time. The Japanese were just as bad. And I think that MK Ultra was inspired by, the, by things going on in those two countries. That
0: makes sense. It does, because they were afraid
1: they had learned something from them.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And they, in a sense, they had, Mm -hmm. um, there's a guy by the name of Kurt Blom, who was probably one of, you know, we talk about Dr. Mengele as if he was sort of the height of evil in Nazi Germany, but really, um, his experiments were humane compared to some of the things that were happening over there. And that's not to say that he deserved any kind of leniency. I'm just saying that, Mm. There was some terrible, terrible stuff going on mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And the Americans were so eager to learn from it. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually, Blum went on trial at one of the Nuremberg doctors' trials, but he was acquitted. And mm-hmm. almost right away, the US said, hey, do you want to work for the CIA?
1: <laughs> wow. So he, became, he yeah. became
3: one of the paperclip guys. These
1: are, yeah, these are just, these are so shocking and disturbing. Yeah. Things.
0: Really you know, I think uh, uh, John Le Carre wrote in his in his memoir about being involved in in some spying activities, um, in which there were former Nazis installed in leadership mm-hmm. positions, and everybody knew it, and mm-hmm. everybody just kind of let it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote about being really quite you know shocked and um at finding he had to participate in that world
3: Mm -hmm. well you know really at some point they didn't even really try to hide it and then you have guys like kurt waldheim who you know was working for the un but was former Mm -hmm. i think ss or sa or something and you know it was kind of it was general knowledge i mean people were in the know but until there's an outcry no one does anything right And it has to be a pretty large outcry. Uh, The paperclip scientists, you know, the Jewish community knew some of these guys. They knew about, like, Hubertus Strokehold and and people like that. They knew what kind of experiments they'd been involved with in Nazi Germany. And every time that these guys would win awards or be promoted, the Jewish community would come out and say, hey, (laughs) excuse me, this is not the kind of, uh, we don't want to honor these kinds of people. And they would just be ignored, right? Mm-hmm. Those concerns were just paved over and, hey, these guys have contributed to America, they've made us safer during the Cold War, so we reformed them. <laughs> and did they?
2: No. Know.
1: And it doesn't even matter if they reformed them, I don't think.
3: To my mind, no. No, you know, these were people who should have been in jail. And with mm-hmm. MK Ultra. It's kind of the same situation. You know, even after things came to light and after there were various um committees like the Rockefeller Commission, there were really no legal consequences for no, the people got, who got, the program.
1: He got um what's it called when you get um you're you're not per, you you can't be charged um he, he,
0: immunity. He, he had you. immunity. He had immunity. Yeah.
3: Yeah. He was compelled to testify before some subcommittees. And he would always invoke the National Security Act Mm. and say, look, you know, for the protection of my nation. Right. (laughs) So he would get to play the great patriot. Yes. And maybe to his mind, he was a great patriot. I guess
1: they did think they were patriots. Um, They didn't think they were racists or um, narcs or whatever, because George White definitely sounded like a racist.
3: I think he was a lot
1: of things. He was a lot of things. (laughs) He was really quite terrible
3: to fill in the listeners a little bit i i would highly recommend operation midnight climax which was literally the name of the program right he had these little apartments set up and he would bring people there and try to get them to you know Mm -hmm. spill all their secrets Mm -hmm. um yeah he was he was really a character and you, you have to wonder why anybody would work with them in any capacity. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that's, you know, I think the possibility is that, that, you know, up in the German army, they found creeps to do these things in um, the doctors. They were already sadistic, I think. Um, yeah. I don't think they were made that way. Some, some soldiers were just soldiers. Absolutely. Many people in the armies are, are the soldiers, but some of these personalities, they found them. I think Gottlieb found the kind of pers- perfect person that was, he was so bent that he would do this. I, I think other people would have said, no, I'm not going to poison someone.
3: You know, yeah. I've been, unbeknownst me, to them. What blew my mind about this guy, I had not known about this before listening to the podcast, oh. was that he actually would dose his friends.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Even his own friends
3: yeah women who who turned him down in bars mm-hmm. he would do it out of vengeance mm-hmm. wow just a just a creep
2: yeah a
3: super
1: creep person. super creep that part was yeah the the, the podcast at operation midnight climax really did focus mostly on him and he was a pretty fascinating a true evil maniacal character
3: He yeah. actually he wrote a biography a memoir yeah Autobiography biography and memoir that yeah. I would love to read if yeah, I could get I, my hands on that. Yeah, I, uh, I he apparently left out a lot of things and exaggerated <laughs> others, but that would be an interesting read. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Sarah, thank you. Thank you for hanging yeah. out with us. Well, and, thank uh,
3: you. Guys. It's always good to talk to you. Such a and... creepy topic.
1: Because <laughs> it could happen to anyone if we let agencies like this do it. You like the CIA, you know?
3: Yeah. And in exactly. Canada,
1: I think that was always the part that freaked me out that it extended to Canada like that.
3: Yeah, that was the point. That was kind of what got me hooked into it was thinking, yeah. wow, you know, where else did they extend their little tentacles? Mm-hmm. You know, if
2: mm-hmm. they
3: were able to get into Canada into a, a teaching hospital and, mm-hmm. you know, get at a, a doctor who had a really good reputation right? as a healer. You know, how oh, do you yeah. do that? I don't it's,
0: know. Um, it's pretty terrifying because you know, we want to trust our doctors. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it's right out of a horror film.
3: Especially a psychologist, just a psychotherapist of any kind. You know, there's a vulnerability and a trust there. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And people were going to him in their most vulnerable places in life. Yes. Just to get some relief, Mm -hmm. you know, just in the hopes that Mm -hmm. they could get on with ordinary lives. And they ended up so much worse off.
1: Well, on that happy note, do you have any? <laughs> do we have any positive spin? Yeah, Be, watch your drink at strangers' parties. <laughs> it's so weird because it was like listening to a roofie diary, you know.
0: Well, yeah. what's, what's interesting is I think now people are talking about um, real controlled research into using um, psychoactive substances mm-hmm. for healing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a much Different kind of ball game than than they were up to with with MK Ultra, but maybe yeah. that's a positive uh that's come out of it. Is, I think so. It's the ability yeah. to have real research going on.
1: Yeah, I and think... f- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. And uh, the fact think... that they couldn't change anybody—that the kids loved it,
3: and it—it exactly.
1: it, it, yeah. it brought out a very positive part of our culture.
3: Yeah, and yeah. you know there is some speculation that because they had kind of uh, you know gotten acid out to uh, so many people in in LA and San Francisco and places like that, that it really started to catch on. Like people would go and talk about their experiences and be like, yeah, I don't know what I took, man, but it was, it was pretty wild. And it kind of contributed to the the whole growth of the LSD hippie culture. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not all bad. It's
1: not all bad.
2: All
1: All right. Thank you. And we'll see you next Next time. time. Yeah, thanks so much, you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you.
0: A lot of fun wasn't it eugene yeah it was it's it's always fun talking about cia shenanigans <laughs> uh and uh poisoning people with hallucinogens yeah and talking but yes to sarah. It, it is yes it's always great to talk yeah. to sarah uh a fabulous guest special agent mm-hmm. in edmonton alberta that's right
1: that's right we've got em- we've got spies everywhere we do uh, yeah so um I made an effort yesterday. We went to a matinee.
0: Guess what ah, we you went to see Dune.
1: We did. We had to. You saw it, so we had to.
0: Well, you know, we we went. As you know, I've mentioned before, I read the first Dune book okay. when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I can't even begin to tell you how much I disliked the book. <laughs> it wasn't like, eh, not my thing. I'll put it down. No, I actively disliked the book, you know, at the time I thought, I thought this book, I mean, this was written for like 15 year old stoners who have the entire collection of, of vinyl Pink Floyd albums, Guilty right? As I thought that, and it's just, Guilty as charged. It's, <laughs> and it's, it's just, it isn't my jam. I really don't like it. And you know, you're pretty tribal as, as a teenager yes. and yes. they weren't, those guys weren't my tribe. So I thought this isn't for me, but I made the effort to to read it at the time to just to confirm my doubts. And now again, uh, Tuffy P and I went to see it because uh, I'm trying to get outside my comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I knew I was going to have difficulty with this. As I said, it's not my jam, but we did make the effort to go out there uh, to, the, to the theater and, and see this one. So what did you think? I bet you I loved this one. loved it.
1: I knew you'd love this <laughs> I, one I, I knew I it. it I felt like I was getting together with some old friends I hadn't seen in a while you know uh, first okay. of all um I lived on the west coast Frank Herbert's from the west coast it has a lot of influence of um you mentioned tribes but it has a lot of influence from first nations and um uh, different economies so for me I loved it as a kid this was a huge influence on me um along with all the west Coast um vibes where we were really really at a young age super concerned about the environment we hated logging we felt like the world was going to hell and Mm -hmm. industrial complex was killing us all and pollution and capitalism Um, I've never voted for any party except the socialist party in in Canada ever Um, my dad used to turn my picture to the wall and shame he said he was kind of a liberal and um, so for me, this is my jam. It was a huge influence on me growing up. I also read it, all the kids in school read it. And I also read it um, later on in, um probably just finishing high school, early adult, somewhere in there, uh, you know, maybe 17 or 18. And um, I hadn't, and he was just a huge influence on the culture. Um, and I read all the Dune books. So I was pretty excited to see this movie. And then I also am a big fan of the first one. The first Dune with David Lynch is one of my very favorite movies. I did watch it last week in Tennessee or two weeks ago in Tennessee. And I could see why critics didn't like it. I I hadn't ever been able to see that before. And this time around, I could see why it had problems. And um, so that was kind of interesting. I still love all the costumes and the sets in David Lynch's version. Um, what was fantastic was to see a new way yesterday to show an anti capitalist story. Um, how do we get out of this um, predicament that we're in? And I've said it here a million times I, you walk away. Dave Chappelle says, Get off the bus. I say, Walk away. And um, we saw them change and learn. And no, they, they lost it. was a coup that made this. Dude is a story of a young, um, bougie, rich aristocrat on one planet and his family is given this planet to take care of that's gone to dust it's already been burnt out it's it's like Africa with sand and the fertile crescent now is sand on earth and this is like that on dune um when he when the family gets there there's a major coup and they have to lose their their empire and what happens is they turn back to a different economy of hunter and gather and uh, tribal systems so in all of that way fantastic i thought the movie was gorgeous Oh, my God. And there was very little orange and blue. Sheila told me once how now movies only have orange and blue. And from then on, all I could see was orange and blue. Yeah, and but this felt- movie
0: is really all gray.
1: It's all gray and brown. I gray, loved how gray, it looked.
0: Gray, 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 gray. Uh... Super ponderous shots. You know what it reminded me of at the start of the film? It yeah. reminded me of the first effort to make a Star Trek movie. You know, the one with Ricardo Montalban yes, and I those do. slow, ponderous yes. shots of space. Mm-hmm. Wow, we got C- CGI, man. We could really <laughs> show space. Space. yeah let's really really show space well it's the same kind of slow sprawling ponderous shots oh god and then and then they cheesed it up with some dialogue oh they think you're the one i, said, oh, I already it's like 10 minutes in i'm going crazy like i this is two and a half hours long i don't know if i can handle it so yeah. anyway continue sorry to well, interrupt i i would say i thought the dialogue was
1: not horrible i i like the dialogue 80 percent of the dialogue oh, and they I had liked.
0: superpowers too right yeah, This the ben guy Gesser had, Gesser he had this riches. superpower
1: thing i'm a ben jesse witch, so i mean we have superpowers that's how it is oh, okay. and um all right, all right, it right. is a part of life some people are intuitive some people have these other powers you can't see
0: and they practice Yeah, but them. it had this like when they when they were having fights because you have to have <laughs> like the fight training scenes um yes. that's kind of the rigor well you know they kind of turned red and, and they, they, uh, they had a something thing. happened. It like something happened with the film. It kind of shook in a weird way. Like, because it's like, they have like the superpower. That stuff was not the on. superpower
1: I was talking about. That's not a superpower. That was just a war tool. That was a weapon tool. That was a shield.
2: They they have a
1: thing on their wrist and it provides a shield while they're fighting. So they don't, they may not get hurt. And sometimes uh knives penetrate that shield sometimes no the superpowers the special powers were the practice the religious practice of the witches the ben jesuits they're not really witches that's a slur ah. um they are ben jesuits and so part of the story is that this is the first time that there's a male been allowed into this matriarchal order so um there's a lot of back when I thought those costumes were incredible. I loved all the costumes. Yeah, sets. It is, certainly being... is a
0: costumer. Uh, de- I would definitely call it a costumer, although it's, I don't think it was a bodice ripper. It's
1: not a bodice ripper. Not yet. Maybe the but sequel it is, will it,
0: be. Uh, it, is a, it is a costumer. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- there is a tendency in a lot of sci-fi type things to have, on the one hand, advanced technology,
3: mm-hmm. and on the
0: other hand, have things that are um, very medieval in terms of uh, uh, rituals and practices and lore and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And this indulged in that too. I mean, they even brought out a bagpipe. I thought the bagpipes were awesome. We started to laugh. We started to laugh out loud at the bagpipes. I'm sure everyone in the theater was looking at us, but we were like rolling on the floor (laughs) laughing when the bagpipes came out. (laughs) And I'm going to confess we didn't last much longer than that. It was like, this is just, the, if they don't speed this up, I don't I don't think I can handle it. And, you know, finally, we just said, you know, let's go home and have coffee. So yeah. we went home and had coffee and we, we didn't, you're going to have to carry on because we accepted that it wasn't our jam and we just. Uh, right. Just uh, frankly, I was surprised you went to see it. Uh I, I don't I, think tried, can, I tried. I tried, you know, and I even primed myself by watching an episode of The Last Kingdom, you know. But uh that, <laughs> I couldn't get further than why well, I got through a whole episode, but that's as far as I could yeah. get in that one. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I guess I, the whole fan this kind of fantasy sci fi thing is just it doesn't do it for me. Although I did go to see Shang Chi, as you know, and <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but I loved it on the strength of um of the uh of the beautiful choreography which was just i really loved what they did visually in it that that really uh caught my attention much more than this kind of ponderous slow grayness right uh, but that you don't was like seeing. ponderous
1: slow period usually you don't like ponderous and slow it's come up many many times and that's fine we all have different tastes and we yes, all have we different styles
0: and so I, and I and i and i i totally and uh, it would
1: be that. highly unusual for me to recommend a science fiction film to you either because i don't no. think that's your genre
0: that's right. Um, I mean, people don't genre. recommend like like prog rock videos to me either. You know, with guys in robes and and dry but ice. They're not
1: connected at all. They're not okay. connected at all. Um, <laughs> I don't like prog rock either. Um, but um, that's boy music. Anyway. You know, uh, I,
0: I I'm going to admit I also had trouble sitting through all of Lawrence of Arabia, and and I see a lot of similarities okay, put it in a desert Duh. and have a big, big sprawling Duh. story, have mm-hmm. like a hero that goes through all these different trials and everything. Um, it's a lot, a lot like Lawrence, of and, you know, and well, I, I respect that movie in order to see the whole thing. I had to try several times. Right. I couldn't actually do it in one setting. That is
1: totally fair. And that's you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> And I understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also with the Irishman, there's a time thing for you and um, topic. And, and obviously deserts are not your thing right now. Although you liked Fury
0: Road. Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, that was a great movie. Yes. And, <laughs> and it's science it's, fiction. Yes. But that had this, I mean, the whole thing was like a dance. the The entire thing was this amazing, amazing choreography. It was visually to me really interesting right well you know i wonder you know it's occurred to me i wonder
1: how many people who are not there's three people that that are going to go to this movie there's going to be fans of dune there's going to be non-fans of dune They're and movie-goers. there's going to be moviegoers yeah, yeah that's that's a three and um so i'm curious how that will play out for people who are moviegoers for me this was totally a fan thing now however stay did not read dune didn't know anything about it maybe maybe he watched. Um,
0: Oh, interesting and did just, you like it did yes, he enjoy that yes yes yeah.
1: and he thought if the bagpipes don't win him over nothing will <laughs> oh
0: he liked the bagpipes okay
1: no so he the bagpipes said killed us i know they he said look if eugene doesn't love these bagpipes then nothing will help him with this movie <laughs> <laughs> he's
0: exactly right yeah so the thought... bagpipes the bagpipes finished us yeah Yeah, I I liked it. Um, And
1: I think um, I love the mother and son relationship. That was really a strong, important part for me. I loved it. What else did I love? Well, I just love the whole movie, but I, I don't think I'm the critic for this movie because I'm a total fan. For me, like I said, it's everything But it, it kind of seemed like loved. it was,
0: like, my first impression was, oh, this is really for fans of the books.
1: I don't know how you could watch the movie without being a fan, frankly. It's because mm. there's so much underwritten in it, and you have to be into this um, coup situation and, and anti-capitalist. You have to be into this industrial, this program. Now, listen, Parasite's also anti-capitalist, anti-status. Mm-hmm. So that's a very different way to deal. Yeah, with to, it.
0: to me, that the, the story, the content of the story, had nothing to do really with with why I I I didn't like. It. I'm I understand fine with that, that story. <clears throat> yes, um, you know, I just uh, I really just didn't like the film.
1: Yeah, and I I'm gonna say that I think it's you know it's for fans. I maybe we'll have some people that listen to our podcast and they're not fans, and they can tell us what they thought that they were just moviegoers. That'd be interesting. Um, the other thing is, I'm glad you went to the movie and supported the theater.
2: Of well, course,
1: we, we
0: try to go out a lot to the movies. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and that's what we were like, we've got to get out, I mean, and go out carefully. Um, as you know, we're, we've been in New York City, I've got to tell you about New York City, and um, no one at this theater, we were in Connecticut when we went to the theater, there was only three of us, four of us in the theater, Steg and I wore a mask and nobody, the other two people did not. Uh, I hear you have to be
0: masked. Yeah,
1: we were miles from each other. Um, However, but in New York City, everywhere, everywhere, every gallery, every museum, every bodega, every grocery store, everything, every hotel, every lobby, vaccine card and ID. Good. Yeah, it was fantastic. I was so impressed and it was so great. To just be out and go to galleries and expose ourselves that's to sure. art. Yeah, and it was totally worth the vaccine card. Um, when we went to a restaurant, same thing. It just felt great to know that um, okay, we're all in this, we're all vaccinated. Um, if we get sick, that's that's right. all- this this
0: this the safest environment we could be in yes. and still function yes. as a civilization.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And so I I it was really fascinating to to just see how vigilant New York City was being and I guess they just don't want to go back to how it was, you know? Mm. They had a really rough time of it,
0: and they don't want it
1: back again.
2: Well, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, So that was pretty cool. I wanted to tell you about something that's happening here in Canada. I don't know if you've heard about it or not. That's to me, is very much related to, Mm. well, it's a life imitates art kind of situation. Mm. Because, you know, Sheila and I are watching season three of Succession. Yes, Right now, Succession is a story about an enormous telecommunications company that's family-run mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that are basically eating each other alive. Uh, Rogers. Rogers. Here in Rogers. Canada, we have a company that, that's called Rogers. Mm-hmm. And um, they're having a family meltdown. Uh, the, well, it uh, couldn't happen to nicer people. Well, the um, I don't really know anything about the people. I don't either. But I... Um, I just so don't like that company. I'm gonna say it's a it's a, a huge company. Uh, it's it's a family business. <laughs> my phone always rings during the podcast. I'm just gonna just shut my ringer off. All right, because I know it's just gonna be a duck cleaner. Totally. Um, so at Rogers, the a guy one of the son of Ted Rogers, who's mm-hmm. Edward Rogers. Um, he wanted to remove the CEO, a guy named Joe Natale. And that was just my phone telling me that I missed the call. Uh, so anyway, he wanted to remove the, uh, the, the CEO. Um, and the other board members blocked the move, including his mother and his sister.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, and he was removed as the corporate chairman. However, wow. he has 97.5% of the voting power uh-huh. and he decided he wanted to replace five of the board members with his own people and figured he could do it because he's got like so much voting power. Uh-huh. And the company said, no, 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 no. You can't do that. And... Um, and he just did it anyway he created his new board and he was elected the chair of the new board <laughs> well now rogers has two boards of directors each saying they're the legitimate board mm-hmm. and it's going off to the supreme court to try to to wow. try to settle it meanwhile the company has just spent 26 billion to buy their main competitor in Western Canada, Shaw Communications. Mm-hmm. So that's a deal that has not been completely finalized yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the delay is. And I have no idea if the problems at Rogers uh, are going to affect this this huge deal which really it it affects us all in a way because I mean these are the two biggest companies that are running the telecommunications business Mm -hmm. in Canada and we're talking about um, phones Mm -hmm. internet um, uh, we're talking about sports teams Mm -hmm. tv cable all of that I mean these are enormous companies and it's just fascinating to see i mean i don't have any comment on i don't know anything about the rogers people but i i will say that it's fascinating to to be watching a fictionalized account mm-hmm. of of a telecommunications family giant um and all their infighting at the same time as we have the real mm-hmm. um family giant company um in in i can only say it's chaos uh, you know so i don't know how that's all going to be resolved right. but it's fascinating to be reading the actual news reports while watching uh the succession series wow. so i don't know how either of them are going to uh end up at the end of really? season three and uh and autumn
1: this is me off that not only do they charge way too much for their services. Um, I hope they pay union wages I suspect they don't it pisses me off that now they're going to take more taxpayers money to go to the Supreme Court in Canada uh, you know it's just the decadence of, uh, of, of well the court people. system is
0: the court system and that's how we resolve disputes so of course uh, you know I, I but we're still I, I'm, for- not, I'm not concerned about the taxpayers money yeah. spent on the court system the court system is there to resolve these sorts of, of disputes yeah you know, it's just there's a lot of people who were very upset because we had an election and, oh, they spent $6 million on this election. Well, we have an electoral system. And when we have elections, they cost um, money. We, they, they cost money. And yeah. we have elections um, in various different ways. That's how our system is, is set up. So, uh, you know, I discounted that criticism. Yeah, I well. do too. I do too. Yeah. Um, is it true that the RCMP
1: are resisting vaccinations?
0: I don't know. Oh, okay. I I do know that um, increasingly uh, we're seeing organizations, including the Toronto Police Service, um, including hospitals uh, and various other uh, services, uh, now insisting on vaccinations. Right. And what we're seeing is some people are being let go because they've refused to either give their vaccination status or get vaccines mm-hmm. and they've been given an opportunity to do so and now um we're we're seeing people uh who are digging their heels in and uh trying to fight this and very mm-hmm. they don't have no employment mm-hmm. i think i think the uh the um the anti-vaxxers out there are finding their world is shrinking Mm-hmm. and nobody else wants to play um, mm-hmm. with them. And so they, they are saying, we have our right to not be vaccinated. And the world is saying, yeah, you but you're not going to fly. You're not going to work <laughs> in a lot of situations. You're not going to go to restaurants. You're not going to go to theaters. You're not going to go to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, your world is shrinking. And that's a, a sad reality for people who have dug their heels in on, on this. And, you know, I, I really have a hard time mustering any sympathy. Um, I strongly believe that um, we really need to uh, kind of squash this uh, uh, this disease to the best we can. And to do it, we have to do it together. And uh, vaccines are our best hope.
1: Yeah. And I, hopefully we can squash it. It didn't feel very good hearing Colin Powell passed away from COVID. Um you know, when you hear a rich person with the best medical care, fully vaccinated, gets COVID and dies, that doesn't sound good. He did have underlying health issues, but it didn't feel great. And he was also
0: in his 80s. He, <laughs> he was in his he 80s. Was getting on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, so I it's think we know. we, we might know all that die is, of COVID. Well, it's, it's possible, yeah. although what I think the data is showing us mm. is that um, you and I, if we get it, um are probably going to have some symptoms and probably recover although it's certainly possible that something could be going on in our bodies we have some other underlying things or or it's possible that uh the virus is going to affect me differently than it might affect you so so we want to keep wearing our masks basically i think certainly for now i I, i'm happy to wear my mask and you know, for the period of time we were in the theater for Dune, which granted wasn't the full two and a half hours, <laughs> uh, we did have our masks on.
1: Right, right. Um, I loved Charlotte Rampling in that. I was so excited to see her. And I thought the kid, Timothy Chalamet, was amazing. He was brilliant. I, I felt as excited about seeing him in that role as I did when I first saw Kyle McLaughlin in that role uh, many years ago. And uh, hopefully, they'll, he'll also have an incredible career open up from this. I think we've got a lot of great things to see from that young actor. Um, the mom was really good, too. Hey, listen, um, we have another guest today.
0: All right. I love guests.
1: I know. And, um, you know, I talked about having in my hands read a few months ago in Iowa and Madison joy read my hands and she's agreed to to give you a reading Eugene and we're going to share that with everybody today
0: you know this takes <laughs> me right out of my comfort zone I know I know, you know the, I, I'm the last guy because I don't want to know yeah. I I you know it's uh, it is it isn't something that I would normally do you know in our family um it's Sheila's job to get the readings done Right. <laughs> she does right. she does that kind of stuff. She likes it. Uh, I right. usually don't like it, but I am ready to take one for the team. I'm so glad to hear that.
1: Hi, we're here with Madison Joy, who I discussed on an earlier podcast, had done a reading of my hands in Iowa, probably about six to eight weeks ago. And it was a really profound experience. And I'm happy to invite Madison to meet Eugene today. Eugene, Madison, Madison, Eugene. Hi. Hi. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too.
1: Now, Madison, I think you have a job that maybe not many of us know is a calling or a profession, or how would you describe it that you read poems?
4: It's definitely more on the vocational side of things because it's a real soul commitment. It's a it's ends up being a spiritual, psychological to, commitment to sort of oblige and work with people on a uh, deeply psychological and spiritual even physical level so it is is definitely in the it is a calling as you said yeah
1: okay good and yet anyone can approach you and have a reading yes absolutely right now when you did mine I was don't tell me I'm going to die in two weeks or anything like that and you straightened me out and said that's not really how it works can you tell us a little bit about, I don't know how you would describe this. You look at our hand,
4: you look at people's hands. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And a lot of people have that um, assumption that it's, it's very much fortune telling and future casting and they get a bit nervous and they think I'm going to be able to see, you know, if they, if they have like a uh, predisposition for major illness or divorce or death of a child you know the yeah. worst things come to mind and you have to sort of disarm them tactfully um, and also just directly saying that's not how this works it's it's more so in the vein of therapeutic counseling after we talk for even 10 minutes I'm sure like Candy could uh test testify mm-hmm. to this you kind of feel like you went deep and direct in a counseling session, kind of skipping a lot of the protocol and the normal, you know, how was your childhood getting to know you questions for say months on end in clinical therapy right. um, with reading, you can get right to the heart of things, like right to the jugular.
0: Um, oh my, I'm afraid.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I my feeling has been, and it stayed with me since your reading was that it was almost like it, explained a lot it's not that i didn't know i had empathy or because you had mentioned the, the shape of my fingertips were symbols of empathy or that i was willful because i knew i was willful there was something about it that just took the tyranny of like oh well i should try and change that or i shouldn't be this way or I should be that way i've actually felt such a relief knowing oh you're, you're empathic No wonder you're always feeling these things. You cry, you laugh, that's okay. Now for me, those have always been my job, tricks of my trade as a painter, to be in tune with my emotions. But there has been a relief since you read my poems. And um, however you would phrase it, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, but um, it's very positive. And I highly recommend uh, people check you out. How did you come on to this? How did this happen? (laughs)
4: um well it was a slow evolution uh my mom certainly you you knowing her candy yes um you you know that she has a background in metaphysical arts, mm-hmm. astrology, tarot card reading mm-hmm. and studying. and so I grew up with with kind of an immersion in working with these alternative I guess you could call them modalities of working with people in a healing counseling scenario. So that was pretty natural to me and working in alignment with my higher self and intuition was pretty natural to me, but then also I have a very analytical pragmatic side that was thirsting for verification and grounded practice. And so I definitely didn't just like grow up and launch right into doing something so outside the box i actually studied psychology in college and i've done a lot of work in hospice and um working with geriatric care and kind of the whole examining the whole spectrum of life to just get a better understanding of human beings in general um and kind of came to hand reading in my late 20s just out of curiosity um like how can i find another way to um, have an inroad with people in a counseling dynamic that helps open them up to themselves, even, even more, you know, than I was taught in school. And hand reading completely opened a world of profound connection. And I found that when I would sit down with people, we would just hit the ground running. And it was just so um, magical and profound that I kind of couldn't turn back. So (laughs) yeah, it's a, it's a horrible, you know, business model in a sense, because I don't want, you know, twice a week to sit down with so-and-so for three years. I actually really, when I work with a person for a hand consultation, I don't really want to see them again for at least another year, maybe six months, but you need time and space to actually work on things within yourself or else you'll come and I'll see the same things and we'll talk about the same things in my business as a, as a hand consultant is not to, um, not to walk you through the healing process. It's to kind of present the information to you. And then I'm an advocate of traditional therapy, go and do that. And mm-hmm. then come back and we'll see what's changed mm-hmm. because in the brain changes on your hands so yeah I'm kind of the jumping off point looking at hands and then I sort of hand you to a cognitive therapist.
1: (laughs) fascinating so fascinating
4: yeah it's really really cool um
1: and you you work online uh, partly because of the pandemic I'm assuming Um, were you doing a lot more in person or are you still doing both
4: I'm still doing both. I certainly was doing a lot more in person prior to the pandemic. I've also moved twice since mm-hmm. um, I was doing most in person. And also I was living in um, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. At that time, I had built up more of a not following, but people knew of me <laughs> Do mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and, and Uh, having moved twice, having had encountered the pandemic, I now mostly work remotely. And um, yeah, that satisfies the need in me to connect with people on a very deep and constructive level and put something out into the world that I think is really unique and helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, should we look at Eugene's hands?
4: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, I guess we could say that we sent you photos we sent you a left hand and a right hand right and then we're going to we've got the video on right now so we can see each other but also so i'm holding my hands up can see eugene's hands
4: yeah okay so now and eugene you can relax your hands for a second because i'm just gonna kind of add this um preface that you told me what's really cool and unique about you is you're largely ambidextrous. You write using your left hand. You cannot write using your right. However, you can play all kinds of sports, namely hockey, with your (laughs) right. And you, you know,
0: play a musical instrument in the the regular way as opposed to the left-handed way. Like I play fiddle, I play claw hammer banjo, and wow. I don't do either of those left-handed. Um, I can't play tennis because I I can serve with either hand, but I can't backhand with either hand. Um, I'm not very good at baseball because um, I catch and throw best with my right hand. I can catch with my left hand, but I can't throw with my left hand, but I can't catch as well with my left hand as I can with my right hand. So, the result was um a rather nasty uh injury to my nose when I was in, in high school playing baseball. I guess I didn't know which hand to catch with and the ball just hit me in the face.
1: Ouch. Oh god. Yes, it
0: was ugly. I, I think
1: something that surprised me that you said um earlier I know about you is that you paint with both hands.
0: Yes, I do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, and I'm you.
0: a I'm a painter. That's my vocation. Mm-hmm. Uh and I've been doing it uh, all my life. And well, I started painting with my left hand. At some point along the way, I started using my right hand sometimes too. And now I can do it interchangeably. Isn't that weird? Yes. I think it's weird.
4: Well, as you know, the hands are intrinsically linked by the nervous system to the brain. And so being quite adept at both hands really just means I would, you know, I would think physiologically your brain is, is wired for sound and that's great. (laughs) You're talented (laughs) and you're firing on all cylinders. And so from a hand reading perspective, I typically would call the dominant hand, um, the hand that you, Write with, eat with, and play sports with. So obviously you're falling into somewhat of a, an exceptional category. Yeah. However, we'll keep the fact that you write with your left hand because I do think that writing, especially you know when you're trying to learn something, it it's even more powerful than a mnemonic device. When you physically write something down and connect that to a learning process, you'll you'll it'll it'll stick. And so That's I'm going to. That's very
0: true. Yeah,
4: yeah, it's, it's, it's really phenomenal. And so for the sake of ease, and for this purpose, we'll call the left, primarily your dominant, in terms of the way that your mentality functions. So looking at that left hand, I've navigated away from the video recording. Sorry about that. But I'm looking at some photos here. Okay, <laughs> and do
0: you need my hand back up again, I could give you my left.
4: Um, so, Not uh, yet. I will let you know when, so your hands don't get too fatigued. Um, So for you, you're really somebody, it looks like you came into your own later in your life. And once you did, you really plowed forward. You took a deep dive into self-development and exploring what you were going to contribute the world, totally apart from what you learned or experienced in the formative years of your life so you cannot be told what to do really working for yourself creating that's true (laughs) yeah that's really your sweet spot and it is a result of it looks like uh the younger formative years of your life the way you were weaned and what you grew up around really made you want to um not disband what you had learned but sort of take parts of it with you, but make something extraordinary and make it your own going forward. And so definitely looks like that's what you're up to. Now, at this stage in your life, Um, you're a very passionate person. And we kind of see that by the general archetype of your entire hands, both of them being uh, the palm is very square, the, the ball joint of the thumb is very lifted and meaty so you're very passionate about things you're you're not neutral hardly ever it's either in or out and you really like to communicate and you're quite good at it very independent so you don't need people around you all the time and I venture to say that when you rest and recharge it has to be alone it has to be when you're by yourself apart from the noise of the world um questions so far
0: no that's remarkable
4: yeah it's pretty cool stuff don't you <laughs>
0: <laughs> i'm trying not to laugh in the
1: background
4: <laughs> it looks like so we'll get into some like i don't know kind of cliche love language talk here, but looking at the heart zone, the emotional zone of your hand, which would be, you know, the notorious heart line, but also the whole zone of the upper portion of the hand and even the fingers as well. You've got this beautiful scoop of a line in its general trajectory and shape. So you have a warm and open heart. However, your mentality lines, it, it runs quite close to it almost in a pinched sort of way. So there's within you the opportunity to open up so much more. So that would also affect you being an artist, your creativity, that wellspring from which you draw, uh, your creative energy could even expand if you really want to push yourself to let in and be less critical of what you let in or who um, even experiences. Um, and speaking of experiences, that is how you bond with people. It looks like you have a very practical love language. So you tend to give people what they need versus something just because it's beautiful, because, you know, like a bouquet of flowers will die. So, really, what's the point of that? They need socks. They have some holes in their socks. <laughs> so that's sort of how you roll. <laughs> and with that, You know sometimes can be a preoccupation with having what you need and making sure all of your relationships are mutually beneficial and that's where you have that opportunity to soften and say does it always have to be transactional can it also just be from the goodness of my heart or can i let someone in closer to me can i let them love me for the good of them And so you have opportunity to be more flexible, I would say, in that emotional region and then express yourself more fully um, unconnected to who you know and what your relationships are. That would no longer be quite as important. Just free expression. It would almost open up uh, a channel that's been um, guarded. I guess I'd say um how's that sound for you so far interesting
0: <laughs> well candy says it's interesting
4: okay <laughs> <laughs> um so it looks it's like always good
1: to love more always good to meet more people and expose to new experiences i would that's how I would take it
4: oh yeah absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely and I would think just because. Um, you tend to channel creativity into painting, you said, and um, obviously the arts are important to you. So uh, being able to tap into more of you and realizing that is what the world needs. Um, and then
1: the world does need more Eugene,
4: the world <laughs> does need more Eugene.
0: I would say in, is increasingly, you know, I've been a painter much of my life, but increasingly music is taking over.
2: Yeah. And,
0: and I've, you know, I played a couple different instruments and at 60, I started playing fiddle. It was an instrument that you should take up at about age five.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And that's that drive and passion that you have to make your life your own and to choose your own reality and not conform unless you feel it's right for you.
2: Mm -hmm.
4: And, and, and then decision-making's in sort of a similar vein of thinking that can sometimes give you a run for your money you can be quite stubborn um however
0: don't laugh candy i'm not
4: (laughs) laughing (laughs) trying to stay quiet over here (laughs) pulling that trigger for you you know when push comes to shove suddenly there's a big you know frog in your throat perhaps and there's just um a lack of implementation when the plan is perfect it just so just working on that just shining that light of awareness on the fact that you know you have it within you to know instinctually what's right what's wrong you want to go left not right because a b and c and really trust that and follow through and have that follow through be more of a seamless practice instead of this staccato halting frustrating endeavor um yeah just working on that so putting more oomph behind your decisions and then planning what you're going to say when things are really important um so i look here at at your thumbs and there's a lack of a waste between the thumb tip and where the thumb attaches to the hand so that's the the seat of your reasoning ability and your logic and we know that you've got it you've got it we can see on your mentality line it's very straight so you actually love it when things are concise they make sense you're to the point. i'm trying to talk in that way actually so i don't lose your your interest
0: <laughs> i was just going just going to say that that I have plenty of waste elsewhere
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: And well, and so that really just means that, uh, yeah, you got to put in a little bit of an extra step, little extra work to be tactful and diplomatic when you're emotional. You got to work to get to that sound reasoning consciousness, (laughs) because if you're upset, that passionate nature of yours, that tenaciousness, that rebound within you can overcome your rationality and really that's all that's saying it's excellent it's an es- it's an excellent artistic quality but in in our relationships it can be a bit detrimental so it's just something to be aware of and um that's the point is we all have a lot to be aware of and work on um and you're certainly a hard worker You definitely reach success after hardship. So, for you, your lessons come hard, fast, and strong. They're not, you know, once in a blue moon, you go through a tough time. It looks like that is how this life has been and will continue to be for you for whatever reason. You wouldn't pay attention otherwise if if lessons weren't a bit of a rocky roller coaster. But after your trial by fire, you sure commit and you really find success and you sort of just blast forward kind of like we talked about your determination to make your life your own your own exquisite journey you know that kind of mirrors that same message and looking at the hands in general messages mirror really all over the place so in a quick reading like this you're really I'm really telling people kind of what three to five themes they could possibly consider working on, adjusting, just being aware of, or just sitting with and thinking about. Um, and that's usually all, uh, a body can handle at once anyways. So
1: <laughs> wow. I, I just find, I, I just feel your, um, energy as you're reading it. So pure of heart. And, um, I really appreciate that. Uh, I don't, it's kind of cool to hear. And I mean, obviously, I know Eugene pretty well. and It's easy for me to laugh about some of the stuff. That's why your
0: face is so red.
1: I know. I was just uh, <laughs> dying over here. Um, but <laughs> these are amazing things. It's like when you say that I'm stubborn and, and willful. She saw that right away in, in my hands. And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, and it, that's a good and a bad thing. It means willful. I can stay strong on an idea, but it means I don't want to hurt. Then I'm going to hurt people if I just continue to argue and not listen to. So, you know, there's, or, or I'm blind to my own mistakes. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to that and it, it is stunning how quickly, and I mean, visually it's not quick. Cause I know you've been practicing for a long time, but how, um,
0: how you focus in yes, so acutely. Thank you. That's fascinating.
4: Yeah. It took practice cause it's a visual synthesis and it's, um that you know it's it's combining like intuitive input with logic and practicality to to then like articulate very emotional emotionally laden intrinsically personal things mm-hmm. even choosing the right words for the right people in the right moment but i think like on a soul level if it resonates there is this like this the soul like discounts a crowded room or if I'm reading at an event like extraneous music or a car driving by like the soul gets excited and takes advantage wants to take advantage of this moment where oh my god somebody hears me and sees me and it's authentic let's work like let's. Mm-hmm. Let, let mm-hmm. The traffic go I don't care mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's just a really, really cool thing and. um, oh, I was going to say something else, but I forget yeah.
1: I was thinking how in the last, oh, well, it's gonna be 20 years, but especially in the last 10 years, how intuition used to be a dirty word. And the the science behind intuition is really amazing. And one of the best definitions I heard about intuition was that intuition is knowing something, but you don't know why you know it. Mm. And um, to see it married with your your study of um, your college years and using it to help people, it, it is really beautiful. And um, you know, I've had a lot of readings over the years, and I am fascinated about the kind of succinct way that uh, people who are really sensitive um, and empathic are able to hone in on on details of our lives without noticing us, knowing us, without knowing us.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it just really it goes to show how um, magical life is and how connected we all are and whether or not you have a very um secular belief system or you're totally woo-woo like in the mm-hmm. cloud we're all connected and um there's just no denying that like if I sit with 200 people and I don't know them prior to me sitting with them. And yet I'm able to pinpoint very specific, highly personal things. And it's accurate after a certain amount of time. I mean, it's even increasingly made me more of a believer, even though obviously I was pretty open-minded to begin. But I mean, it's, it's real. And it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's needed because I think just like Western medicine would, would, um, benefit by incorporating more holistic approaches and Eastern approaches, so too would um, the the world of psychology benefit from incorporating more spirituality and alternative modalities, just to get that direct beat on a person and, and what they need from that higher level and being less fearful of that higher level and incorporating it incorporating it into um, the healing practice.
1: Mm. Madison, thank you so much for visiting us. I don't know if Eugene has any other questions or anything. or
0: uh, no, uh, I'm scared to ask questions.
1: <laughs> I'd I like might to, get answers. I'd like to make sure that we communicate where people could get in touch with you. I've definitely shared with your um, Instagram page and I'll do that again this week. But what would you like to... Have people contact you through.
4: Instagram is really great. So there I'm at Truth Amplified underscore studio. And then um, you can follow a link in my bio portion and go to my Squarespace landing page. And that's how you can book a reading with me. And I reach out by email after that.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, fascinating. And you're, you've really um, helped me understand a few things. Thank you. That's
4: awesome. And you, me... you may
0: hear from my, uh, my partner, Sheila, oh. who when she heard that I was going to participate in this, uh, said, you're getting your hands done. I want mm-hmm.
1: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good, good. And um, yeah, I, I hope people will uh, check you out on Instagram and I will definitely share that and some of our listeners might have to get Instagram accounts.
4: <laughs> yeah, you have to do it, people.
1: Yeah, come on. And um thank you so much.
4: You're welcome. It was good getting to know you a bit, Eugene. It was good hearing
0: learning a bit more about Eugene for me.
4: <laughs> for me,
0: for me too. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, but also um fascinatingly accurate. Mm. I recognize myself in what you're saying uh throughout. Yeah. Most interesting. Most interesting.
4: Well, bottom line with you, Eugene, is you're very talented, very bright. And wouldn't it pay if we were all open to being a little more flexible in some areas? (laughs) So we're right with you there.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I can't wait to watch this happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I've been trying to be more flexible in some areas. You know, for instance... For instance, we Mm. talked about Marvel movies on the podcast, and I went to see one. I I swore I would never see another one. But there, you know, I took one for the team. I'm trying to be open-minded. And you also have a
1: very, the the whole passion thing that you said about him, it does extend to friendship. Eugene's a very loyal, friendly friend. When he's your friend, he's amazing.
0: (laughs) 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 He's and when he's not your friend, he's not. Pain in
1: the butt, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, it's good. You know, I knew somebody years ago who used to call everyone my friend. Oh. So you'd say, you know, my friend Candy, my friend Eugene. Mm. Mm. And one day I asked him about that. And and his response was, oh, it's good to be my friend. <laughs> Apparently not okay. being his friend wasn't so good. Oh,
1: that I didn't take it that way. Oh, it was a threatening thing. Okay. It's like a mafia statement or something. Yeah scary that is scary oh and we like to end things on a scary note around here yeah
4: happy halloween coming happy up. halloween That's right
1: all right thank you madison hey,
0: thank you thank you bye okay we're back, we're in, back. Uh, in agency studios yes and that was i had so much fun uh, having my hands read. I have to say, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that you pushed me into this experience. Good, good. Uh, you know, and part of what was so much fun was, first of all, she was describing me <laughs> so accurately <laughs> it was it was really disconcerting and every time she nailed another truth I watched you turn deeper red as you tried not to laugh oh I was trying not to laugh so hard I mean I looked like
1: I had the world's highest blood pressure I could see your camera too <laughs> because we've got the so audio I was on.
0: trying not to laugh because oh you were God. trying not to laugh and you were trying not to laugh oh. just because she was so accurate Oh, she was nailing it and i mean that's i had the same feeling you know it's one thing
1: to maybe know someone you could know some details about their life but she was really under you know she could she, her mom knows me um her mom could have said anything about me but what she nailed on me was nothing that you would normally talk about it was really to a deeper level and it gave me lots of things to think about about being stubborn I call it willful, but you know, I, I take point taken, you know, (laughs) and also that I have trouble communicating my dream world. I really do. So it's made me think, is there a new way I can do this? How can I improve my communication Mm -hmm. when I feel a need to do it? And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun.
0: Also very interesting is that, is that she saw it as like a, a starting point for, a kind of therapy. I had never yes. thought about a hand yes. reading as being about that. Um, mm. So that was very, very interesting. We're not uh, written in stone. Um,
1: you know, we can learn and we can change and we can, um, if we decide, the only people who could change is us, us ourselves. And if we see something, we just change our behavior. And changing your behavior can change your mindset. It's pretty fun. And speaking of, um, Other things anything I wanted to mention that we'd love to hear from our our listeners if they have had any readings or how they felt, we hope you contact Madison joy truth amplified underscore studio on instagram plus um. You know steg and I have a show on on this weekend we're in a group show this weekend. In Chicago, in Chicago, I know I wish it was in New York, (laughs) but it's in Chicago it's at Martin's Corner Bar and Grill 2058 West 22nd place I've been sharing a little bit of that information, and um, I've got to get when we get back I've got to, you know, figure out how I'm going to install these paintings because they're pretty big. And um, they're not massive. I mean, we saw so much big art today. Mine looked tiny compared to uh, some of the canvases we saw this week. But um, we're pretty excited about this group show. And we hope anybody in Chicago can come and visit us.
0: Uh, excellent. I hope you take some pictures and, and share I those with us. And, I, and I, hope I hope the show is a, a huge success. and Lots thanks. of people come out and have a chance I hope to do your so. work. I hope so. It'll be really fun. Um, I tell you, my head's kind of spinning today from this episode. We've gone from CI... CIA drug experiments, <laughs> yeah. To a deep dive into the wonder of my hands, yes, to to Dune, yes, uh, our
1: disagreement on Dune, which we can
0: do that and still be friends. We can do, we can yeah. do that, we could do it without beating each other up, you That's know. Right. That's pretty good. Yeah, um, and uh and also you know, uh truth and truth and uh, uh fiction. Truth and fiction, art and life, yes. um, with uh, the Rogers family and and Succession, um, and as and well Truth and Fiction mention, with
1: Philip Gustin.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, I've, we've been continuing to watch uh, American Rust, which gets oh, better by the show. Wow. And did you know that five of the nine episodes were directed by John Dahl?
1: Well, we are big John Dahl fans. I did not know yes, that. Yes, we yes we are. Yes, um, and he's done so some amazing. Dahl,
0: Amazing TV films work. such mm-hmm. as uh, uh, Kill Me Again, yep. um, the last Red, Rock, Red Rock West. The Last Seduction. Uh, didn't he do one, one about like, uh, "Last oh, Last Seduction, Linda Fiorentino and <laughs> Last Seduction. Well, you and I, I saw that I can watch that movie the a hundred times. I know. We saw yeah, that in the theater you know, together. I think the last time I saw it, it didn't hold up for me quite oh, as well. It seemed okay. kind of cheesy, but okay. it still had such a great plot twist <laughs> that even though I knew it and I'd seen the movie a few times, mm-hmm. it still nailed me is great you know really good so we do like our john doll yeah. and his directorial work is quite good in in american rust and as i say it had a bit of a, a slow start but it's uh, uh it's pretty pretty interesting um although i still can't shake a comparison to mayor of east town right right hey anything that feels like mayor of east town i'll be watching yeah, there you go yeah <laughs> Um, so send us your emails. We want please. to hear from you. The at gmail.com.
2: Great. And, we'll, and see we'll see you later. later. Thanks we'll for watching. Thanks Bye. For listening. Bye.